going to be in Ephesians chapter 5 today, if you want to turn uh, to that. That is where we will be. I had a couple of announcements to make, but one of them uh, has flown away from my thing here. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grab this. So on your little table that's in your row, you might have noticed something weird that we don't usually have there. Let me explain what this is. I'm going to try something we haven't done before. This summer, we're going to do kind of a uh, question series for much of the summer. So what we will do, as long as you guys participate, is you can put any question you have on uh, this card. Uh, It can be a theological question or some sort of uh, practical living question. or uh, maybe even a current events type thing. Uh, I know some of you guys uh, I've talked to, you're like, why don't you ever bring up current events? And I'm like, well, that's not really what I do. I just want to teach scripture clearly, you know? So this is your chance to like ask something about current events. Just any question you want to put on here. I guess you could even ask something personal about me. I don't think you want to know. You guys know too too much at this point. But you can put that on here. There is a, a gray box on the counter back here that has a big question mark on it. Just drop this in there, and then I will collect those and take most, if not all, of those questions and try to address them this summer. So that's what this is for. Please use those, because if you don't ask questions, then uh, we're just going to sit here and stare at each other for 45 minutes. Uh, So Uh, you you go with that, Nathaniel? (laughs) We'll just, okay. The other thing is this. Starting next week, this will be exciting for some of you, for, some, for others of you, you'll be like, oh, I don't really care about that. Starting next week, we're going to bring back a couple of pods. Uh, so some of you guys uh, really enjoyed the pods, this is for you. Uh, those of you who didn't enjoy the pods, this doesn't apply to you, which is, we're going to set up over here, actually the one on the stage there is sort of already set up for that. This area over here will be set up a little bit differently. And then there'll also be one down the hall. Uh, What those are, if you aren't familiar with those, we haven't done them for a while, is basically uh, it's a a little small group time that's built into our Sunday morning service. So how it will work, uh, which is different than how we've done it before, is uh, we'll have the normal service time. So uh, basically how we have every Sunday morning, uh, we'll have that time. Uh, we end about 11.20, uh, 11.25, 11.30, depending on how long I speak. And immediately following that, so Melissa will get up, do her announcements like she normally does. Immediately following that, there will be a couple of pods going on. So if you want to join those, it's a great time to interact over uh, the message. Uh, There'll actually be some questions uh, that will kind of guide you through that process. It's a time to uh, fellowship with one another, to pray for one another. So if you want to be involved in that, those will be available. Uh, If you don't want to be involved in that, then uh, you would go home as normal or fellowship, talk in the hall for, you know, 20 minutes and then go home. But the pod down the hall, I'll tell you what the purpose of that is, is that one of the things that we've discovered over the years of doing this is that for some people, it's a little hard to hear when there's background noise, right? So the pods in here are going to kind of deal with that. So if you struggle with hearing things when there's a lot of background noise going on, that room, the old nursery is where it's going to be, that room will be available for that so that it's, there's less background noise. So that will be uh, starting next week. All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're going to be back in Ecclesiastes for a few weeks. 
as, as we talked about when, when I first started this Ecclesiastes series, we've been breaking it up uh, with another series, um, and, and we had Easter and Palm Sunday mixed into this. But Ecclesiastes uh, tends to be a pretty uh, depressing and bleak look on, on life, and I thought, ah, probably a good idea to break it up. And so we're doing that, but we're going to be back in it for a few weeks. So make sure you're, you're ready to be depressed for a few weeks, because that's what we're going to be doing here. If you remember, Ecclesiastes is, is written by Solomon, this uniquely wise guy that God had granted him unique wisdom. There was, there's, uh, there was no one before him that was like him. There's been no one since him that's like him. He had a unique ability to uh, understand things and to, um, to really see the nature of what life is, which is really what Ecclesiastes is primarily about. Solomon sets out to try to understand this world, understand life under the sun, which is life without taking into consideration kind of transcendent things, eternal things, just to look at this world and what this world has to offer for us. And he specifically is looking at whether this world can provide for us fulfillment, whether it can provide meaning and purpose to our lives. And if you've been around for this, uh, the, the unequivocal answer is absolutely no. Uh, this world has nothing for us. Uh, it will not fulfill us. It, it, it will not bring meaning and purpose to our lives. And he kind of goes through a lot of different categories on that. He starts trying to strip away things that that humans tend to try to put their confidence in, he destroys these ideas because he pursued them, he thought through them, he's smarter than you, he's smarter than me, and he spent a lot of time studying these ideas, and he's come to some conclusions that we probably should listen to. But they're all pretty depressing conclusions. They're, They're depressing because he's basically saying this life is unavoidably empty, uh, unavoidably, most activity in this world is, is unavoidably repetitious and ultimately worthless and meaningless. That riches are fleeting, uh, he'll t- touch again on that today. That education, becoming the smartest person uh, you can be, you will never learn enough. And then after you're gone, people probably won't even remember you, and they definitely won't remember what you learned. That trying to build into the next generation of people, because you can't find fulfillment in your own life, maybe, hey, maybe I can, I can build into the next generation. Well, no, that's equally meaningless, he says. He talks about oppression in our world, and that, and that there's so much oppression that, for one, it, it colors the nature of our world. Our world is an oppressive place to live, and it's so oppressive that actually, he says, for some people, it probably would have been better for them not even to be born. It's so oppressive. Those are great thoughts, right? He says even human achievement, which our world is pretty big on, uh, achieving things, the best, trying to be the best humanity we can be, he says that is utterly worthless because really it's all just about competition. It's all just about envy of neighbor, and so I want to one-up my neighbor, And that's what drives a lot of human achievement. I was thinking about this, and I didn't use this illustration when we we studied this, but I think of the the space race, right? Uh, 1958, they institute NASA. By 1962, right, five years later, you have JFK giving a speech in which he says, 
we choose to go to the moon. I don't, I don't really have a good accent, but you get, yeah, right? And everybody's like, yeah, we choose to go to the moon, yeah, right? Do you know how he ends that? He says, he ends that speech with, we will do it right, and we will do it first. The whole space race, we love that we landed on the moon. It's, it's a great moment in human achievement, but that human achievement was simply envy of our neighbor right? We had to beat those Soviets, and we did, and it drove great achievement, right? This is life. I think of this a little bit like, I mean, it is depressing to think about these things, but so wise. That's the thing, is that we can't let the, the, the negativity draw us away from the wisdom of it. I, I think of it a little bit like, um, I don't know if you had this when I was a kid, I, or when you were a kid, I definitely had this when I was a kid, but we, we had these uh, videos that we would watch of, like, um, mangled cars, right? And, and they, sometimes they would even bring a mangled car on campus and put it right in the middle of where everybody is. And what was the purpose of that? Don't drink and drive, right? Which, by the way, is very wise, right? You should not drink and drive. But they're bringing in this super negative imagery in order to hopefully disabuse us of the idea that somehow drinking and driving is a good idea sometimes, right? Solomon's really trying to disabuse us of the idea that seeking meaning and purpose and and significance in this world is a good idea, because it's not, never a good idea. And he's trying to convince us of that. So let me pray for us, and we'll get into the next section of this. Lord, We are just so thankful for um, your granting Solomon the wisdom you did, your prompting of Solomon to uh, write down these words for us so that we can understand a really important principle that it's easy for us in this world to get caught up in the idea, even as believers, get caught up in the idea that somehow we might be able to scratch a little bit of meaning, a little bit of purpose out of this life. Uh, when, it, when this life is not the place that we find those things. This life is not the place we should pursue, be pursuing those things. Lord, help us to be convinced of that. If we need to change our thinking, if we need to change our behavior, if we need to change our priorities, Lord, may today be the day that we see that. Pray this all in your name. Amen. All right. Chapter 5 starts here. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God, and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words." He's, he's setting up this, the, the context of what he's going to be talking about in this section, which is approaching God. Now, you've got to understand, in their time, in their place, there was a specific place to approach the presence of God. It was either the tabernacle for a while, and then it ended up being the temple, right? So in their mind, if you wanted, if you wanted to draw close to Yahweh, that's how you did it, is you approach this physical place. But, but understand, even though that doesn't 
exists for us today. Uh, you don't approach God by walking into this building. Um, God it actually lives inside of us. Uh, his spirit lives inside of us. Um, he does, his presence does exist in the room when we gather together. Um, there's no question about that. But we, um, we can approach the throne of grace anytime we want, right? But he's, he, his, so his, his wisdom here is applicable to us too, which is that we need to be careful. They needed to be careful. And the reason why they needed to be careful is because they needed to understand who, who they were approaching, right? The God of heaven. We are here on earth. He has an eternal, unlimited perspective on everything. We have a super, super finite perspective of this earth and our experience in life. So we need to be careful. We need to make sure our words are few, not many, which is the idea of trying to somehow tell God how it is, right? Convince God of the way it should be. Maybe if I just make my case in a compelling enough way, God will see it my way. How foolish, right? Instead, we need to shh, quiet down. I have to do that with my sister sometimes. You guys know how my sister talks, right? Like, Christina, just shh, right? Um, just less words. It's, it's, it's great. Um, we need to do that for ourselves. Less words, more listening. He goes on. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying for it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness." Rather, fear God. So he's speaking about vows, uh, which is a foreign idea to us. Um, very common in their time to make vows before God, make vows to God. Um, we don't do a lot of that stuff. Um, but understand, again, he, what he's trying to say here is, for these guys who are making vows to God, you need to understand who you're making the vow to. This is not some, um, some chump that you're trying, to, trying to, uh, to fake out. Not some guy that you can, you can sort of weasel your way out of your commitment. This is the God of heaven. You need to slow down and think about this. Now again, we don't make old covenant sacrifices like they're talking about. We don't make vows like they were talking, he's talking about in his time. But their God, Yahweh is our God today. He's the same God, right? He's the same then as he is now. And we should live in proper fear of him. Um, I, I'm convinced, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but I'm convinced that, that, our, that our culture, and particularly our, our church culture, does not live in enough reverence of who God is. 
Uh, we, I think, have tended to um, focus on, you know, God's grace and his mercy, um, and somehow we, rec- we equate God's grace and mercy to a picture of God that is like a spineless God, a, a pushover, um, that grandpa who would never say a harsh word to you and always has candy in their pocket, right? Um, this is not who our God is. I love... Um, this, I love C.S. Lewis in general, but I, I love this quote from the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, he does such a great job creatively saying things. So Aslan is, is a representation of God, right? He says, uh, this is the beaver and, um, and Susan talking to one another. He says, Aslan is the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I think today in our culture, we would say, yeah, he's super safe. Look at all his grace and mercy. No, 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 he's not. Look at him. Safe, says Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. Our God is not safe. You look at, you look at every encounter that we have that, that, that records a person's encounter with God, and they are wrecked absolutely wrecked. All of them are face down on the ground, right? Like almost instantly, right? They just can't handle it. He is so, (laughs) he is so awesome. This is the thing about the way we use words though. We say awesome, and and I don't know about you, but I think of awesome dude, like he's so cool. No, 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 no. That is not what the word awesome means in the Old Testament. The word awesome means holy moly, right? Like, he is just so great, so fearsome, that I, am, I should be shaking in my boots. That's the kind of God we have. This spineless pushover kind of God, that's a God of our own making. That's not who we, who we have. We have a God who breathes out massive balls of fire, right? Raging fire, and we call them stars. They're these little pinpricks in the sky. Go look at those things, right? Our own sun is just a raging ball of inferno, and he's like, boop, right? I'll create that. This is our God. Our God drowned millions of men, women, and children in the flood. That's our God. Our God wiped out two cities completely off of the face of the earth. Just, see ya. That's our God. Our God turned a wife and mother into a pile of salt. That's our God. He burnt to a crisp two of the first priests of Israel. Burn them up. That's our God. Our God is no mamby-pamby, weak-kneed, soft person. And to treat him that way, do so at your own risk. Our God is fierce and holy and intimidating beyond imagining. I think a little bit of, uh, of this picture with this. We uh, have taken many, many groups of students down to Mexico, and every time we go, there are checkpoints. Anybody been to Mexico and had to go through these things? Yeah. 
there are checkpoints all along. We've usually traveled, you know, relatively deep into Mexico, so you just hit these checkpoints all the time. And at every single checkpoint, you have police and military with fully automatic machine guns. All of them have them. You cannot pull up to that checkpoint. I mean, you know they're not going to shoot you, right? Like, that would be really bad for them. We're Americans. Like, they're... But you cannot pull up there with them holding these massive guns and not be a little bit sobered by it, right? Because of the possibility that they could use them, right? Our God is a God of grace and mercy. But to approach him, approach him with the soberness of knowing that he could snuff us out in an instant and would be fully within his rights to do so. This is our God. And if you, th- if you think, I, I know I've had these conversations before, and people go, yeah, but that's kind of an Old Covenant thing, isn't it? That's kind of an Old Testament thing, isn't it? Well, tell that to Ananias and Sapphira, right? Acts chapter 5. This is New Covenant situation. They go, they, they sell off a piece of land with the promise to bring it the proceeds of that land to help the, the church, and they hold back a part of that. They lie about keeping, it, keeping some of it behind. What does the Holy Spirit do? Boom, they fall dead, one at a time. This is our God. He, he deserves a proper awe, a proper respect, a proper even fear. And even, I would describe most of the interactions with our God as terror. These guys were terrified when they saw him. He's great, we are small. And I think we would do well to remember that. If you want to fill out the point on your handout, this is what I've got there. God is frighteningly fierce and powerful. It would be wise to treat him with the respect he deserves. God is frighteningly fierce and powerful. It would be wise to treat him with the respect he deserves. By the way, what do you you think it did to the church in that time when Ananias and Sapphira fell dead? You think that was a little sobering for them? (laughs) They're probably like, oh man, maybe we should take this a little more seriously. All right, there's this little interlude. Some uh, theologians try to weave this into Solomon's greater argument here. I don't see an easy way to weave it in. I think, honestly, this is just a quick aside. This is a quick thing that Solomon's, like, throwing in here. So I'm just going to throw it in here uh, like I think he's doing. says this, If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. For one, one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. He talked about oppression in the last chapter, and I think he's just throwing in one more thought on that, uh, which is the idea that wherever you find power structures, you're going to find some abuse of power. Not all power is abused. But, but where there's power, there is going to be some people who choose to abuse that power. And I think we can just know, we, we, we know this from our world. If you've lived very long 
any sort of power structure, eventually there's at least a portion of those people who are abusing that power structure, right? It's just the, the way it works. We shouldn't be shocked. We, sh- we can be disappointed, like, yeah, yeah, there we go again, or whatever. But it's not a sh- it shouldn't be a shock to us. Um, now, does that mean that power can't assume a, a good role in promoting justice and righteousness? I think they can. I think that's what power is, is meant to be. Justice is treating people fairly. Righteousness is doing good things, doing the right kinds of things. That's what power structures exist for, is to help people do the right kinds of things and um, treat people fairly. And if they don't, there's punishment that comes from that. That's why power exists, why God has granted power to some. And we know that he's using a king here, um, but governments can do good to their people, right? We've seen that. We've seen governments do good things. Our government does plenty of good things. Now, we don't tend to harp on those things. We harp on the negative things. But our, our government does plenty of very positive things in our country. But we should also recognize that oppression is a reality. Oppression is likely going to exist, be an ongoing problem because we're humans. And power, abuse of power is going to be uh, it, it has always existed. It probably will continue to exist until everything's made right. All right, there's the little aside. Back on to the main topic. Verse 10. He says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. Remember, vanity is useless, meaningless, empty. This is useless, meaningless, and empty. He says, if you love money, and let's be real, come on. Is that easy to do? Sure. Um, If you'd love to have more than you have, uh, more than you need, wouldn't, wouldn't most people want more than just the bare necessities of life? Probably. That's abundance. That's what he's talking about here. Who wouldn't want that? Know this, if you love money, you will never be satisfied with it. Now, you can believe that or you can't believe, or or you can choose not to believe that, but the wisest man who ever lived, the smartest guy who ever lived, who spent his life studying this, who had more money than you could possibly imagine, is telling you you will never be satisfied with it. I think maybe we should listen to him. Maybe we should hear what he has to say. Because it will never be enough. And this is really a lie that I, I, I see perpetuated. I see uh, all people, even believers, believing some of this. That the lie is this, that you're not satisfied with what you have now, which most people are not, by the way. You can think about it for yourself. Am I satisfied with what I currently have? Most people are not satisfied. And the, and the reason they're not satisfied is they believe that they don't, have enough yet, right? That if I just get enough, whatever that enough is, it's, you know, defined in most minds, like if I just get enough, then I will be satisfied. Because right now I'm just, you know, I'm just scraping by, I'm just barely making it, and so if I just have enough, then I'll be satisfied. It's such a lie. You will never have enough. It doesn't matter how much you have, you will never have enough, and neither will I. 
We will never be satisfied if we're pursuing money as the place to find our satisfaction. It will not come. It's vanity. It's useless. It's meaningless. It's empty. And then he says why. Look at verse 11. He says, when good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? Many think that the, the more we have, the better off we will be. In fact, that's, we use that term, like uh, he's better off than she is, right? Better, that just means he has more money than she has, right? They're better off. And, uh, and we believe, you know, we, we've come to somewhat of a belief that money doesn't guarantee happiness. I think everybody would agree with that. Yeah, money doesn't guarantee happiness. We've seen some rich people who are very unhappy, right? But we have bought the lie that the more we have, the more likely it will be that we will find contentment. But he says, you know what? As your income increases... Guess what also increases? Consumption. The more you have, the more you consume. I don't know if you found this in your life. I've definitely found this in my life with our finances. We have made pittance for many years, and we thought we needed more, and we, you know, we used all the, all the money that we had at the time, right? And then as our income increased, guess what else increased? Our consumption, right? It, the more we had, the bigger, the, the, the more things we consumed. Um, and, and so we think, you know what, if we just prioritize in our lives attaining more things, then eventually we will attain enough. And that would actually make a whole lot of sense if money worked like this. If money were a money bag, right? That you just are stuffing money in, and once you get to a certain amount, it's going to fill up and it's going to overflow, Right? And then I'll be good. The problem is, that bag is not a burlap sack. That bag is an elastic sack that the more money you put into it, the larger it gets. It's like Santa's sack, right? Working the opposite way. Like, he, how many presents can Santa's sack hold? Well, it, it's an unlimited amount, right? The more you fill that thing, the more you can fill that thing. That's what this is. The more you have the more need you will have, not the less need you will have. Which is totally opposite than the way that we ever talk about money, right? At least in this country. Someone who has less money is a person who is in need, right? I've seen plenty of people who have millions of dollars and have deep need. It's just a lie. Um... When I was a kid, when I was eight years old, the only thing I wanted, the only thing, I, I, I was a simple boy, right? I only wanted one thing, and that was this. That's all I wanted. This is the Millennium Falcon, right? That thing was cool. Like, I just dreamed about this thing all the time. Every birthday, every Christmas, I was opening it up, and I was like, it's not a Millennium Falcon. Um, my friend got one, and I was at his house all the time, and I'm like, man, if I just had a Millennium Falcon. But this is the thing. My friend had one of these, which was cool. He was so excited to get one. 
But then you know what? Like, you got the Millennium Falcon, but you don't have anybody to fly the ship, right? So you got to get the action figures, right? Because the ship can't fly itself. And then you have the, the action figures, and they're flying the thing around, and you're having fun with that. But the problem is, the Millennium Falcon without bad guys? Like, you need someone to fight. Give me a TIE fighter, right? So now we can fight them together, right? And they can attack one another. But then the problem is, what's the problem now? Who's flying the TIE fighter? We got to get those action figures too, right? Um, and then you think, the TIE fighter, we all know this, it's a short-range fighter, right? You guys all know this, right? So it can't fly for very long, uh, it has to go somewhere. you got to get the Death Star, right? See, every, everything you have, everything you gain, just causes you to need more and more and more and more, right? We know this. As the great uh, philosopher and rapper known as Notorious B.I.G. said, I don't know what they want from me, but it's like the more money we come across, the more problems we see. Amen, brother, amen. Uh, this is just the reality. And so many of us have bought the lie. Verse 12 says this. The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. He's describing overindulgence, right? The more you have, the more possibility you have to overindulge. Um, we uh, were with some friends uh, at card night on Friday. We played some cards together, um, and uh, Tony made some really, really good carne asada tacos, and I'm telling you, everybody overindulged that night. And guess what we were all saying at the end of the night? Because it wasn't just the carne asada tacos, but it was the beans and rice, and then it was the, um, there was this chocolate dessert that, that, that Kathy made that everybody had to get in on, right? And so by the time the, the, the t our time was over, we were all very, very sick, right? Because <laughs> we had all had way too much of the good stuff. There was too much good stuff. There, is, there are many places like this, but uh, this is from Thorny's Steakhouse. That, my friends, is a free steak. Free steak. That looks pretty good, right? You get, you, get, you get a roll, you get a salad, and then a potato, and free to anybody who can eat the whole thing. That, that is an 80-ounce steak. Five pounds of meat in your stomach. And you got to eat the side salad and the yeast roll and the baked potato. Uh, but if you do, you get the free steak, right? And you get a fancy t-shirt and you get your picture on the wall. And you can join only 47 other people who have ever done it. Hundreds who have not. And guess what? They keep really, really close to the table. A trash can, a pail, right? Because overindulgence causes you to, yeah, you know, right? More is not always a good thing, even though we think it is. 
He goes on to give kind of a case study here for us in, uh, in verse 13. He says, there is a grievous, grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owners to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. He says there's a grievous evil that he's witnessed. This is actually someone he knew, he witnessed, right? Remember, he had scoured the world looking for wisdom, and this was something he had come across. This is, this is a desperate story of misfortune that he witnessed. You have this man who spent a lot of time and effort amassing a fortune, and he got it. He amassed his fortune. Something goes wrong, he loses all of it. Now he has absolutely nothing. And even worse, with his wealth, he, he thought, you know what? Let me build a family. I've got wealth. I can handle a family. So he has a young family. And now that family has nothing. He can't even feed his own family. And he says, what that guy came into the world with, nothing, right? Doreen has seen a lot of this, right? When that baby comes in the world, got anything? Hold on to a few gold, gold coins in their hand as they come on out? No, there's nothing, right? Absolutely nothing. And he's going to leave the world the same way. And as grievous as this story is, as depressing as this is, right, that's sad, Right? All of us, it's the same deal. Every single one of us are going to leave this world exactly how we came into this world with zip, zilch, nada. Verse 16. He says, this also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. I'll explain the second part here in a second, but, but the first part is, this, this applies to everyone in the world. Bill Gates is now worth $132.3 billion. Did he have that when he was born? No. Is he going to have that when he's dead? No, he's not. He owned nothing coming in, he's going to own nothing going out. Jeff Bezos, $177.5 billion. That's Amazon, right? Did he have that coming into this world? Nope, nothing. Is he going to have it going out of this world? Nope, nothing. And all of these people who have these riches worked very hard to get what they had, Right? They're smart guys. They, they uh, you know, cobbled something together. Both of these guys they just described are, are not guys who came from wealth. They, they both came from next to nothing, right? And they built this. But look what he says. Throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. He's saying in his time, you have the, these guys who worked their booties off trying to get a, amass wealth. And to do that, they got up 
before the crack of dawn, they worked all day until sundown, and they came home and ate in the dark, right, with a little bit of candlelight. And they did that day after day after day after day after day, just so that they can die with nothing. The idea here is that wealth takes sacrifice. Pursuing it, if you love it, if you're trying to attain it, it is going to require you to sacrifice. Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos would tell you they have worked and continue to work 80 plus hours a week, right? Just slaving away. Bill Gates has gotten a little bit of a break. In the end, you got nothing for all that labor. Point on your handout if you want to fill it in is the pursuit of money will not bring satisfaction and will instead only increase your need of it. The pursuit of money will not bring satisfaction and will instead only increase your need of it. Now, he finishes with a concession, which he's done this a couple times for us. He's like, with all that in mind, I understand it's all meaningless, it's all worthless, it's all empty, You're going to leave the world the same way you came. This is what he says. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting. To eat, to drink, and to enjoy oneself in all one's labor, in which he toils under the sun, during the few years of his life which God has given him. For this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, He has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. If you're going to work hard, if you're going to amass a fortune, if you're going to have a bunch of money, um, then use it up is what he's saying, right? If you're going to slave away doing that, you know, work hard, play hard, right? Use the money that you have Um, because this is all you got, right? This, this life is the only thing you got under the sun, right, from that perspective. This is all you got. So don't waste your life working and then die with, with nothing, right? Instead, work hard and then blow all your money on stuff that's fun, is what he's saying, right? And it's, it sounds a little positive, right? He's talking about a gift of God. Like, um, this is good. Like, God has given you the, these resources that you've worked hard for. So use them, right? And, and have fun with them. And that's a gift of God. But look at what the gift of God is. Look at what the re- reward is. Look at verse 20. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. The reward is distract yourself as much as you possibly can from the pointlessness of life. That, that your, your life is so short, it's a breath, right? Do a bunch of fun stuff, blow all your money, so maybe you'll forget how vain and useless and worthless and empty and short this life is. Sounds great, right? Thought it was going to be positive, but he really turns it around and says, yeah, it's really just a distraction. Point on your handout if you want to fill it in is, if you're lucky, money may serve you well, but only as a distraction from the meaninglessness of this life. 
All of this should hopefully be bringing us to a place of wanting to find where meaning really comes from, right? If meaning and purpose and significance don't come from this life, maybe, maybe, maybe there's another place that it can come from. Bottom of your handout is the God of the universe is not the type of person to be treated lightly. He is far too powerful and far too ready to use that power. The only proper response is a healthy dose of reverence and respect. A life lived in pursuit of money, on the other hand, deserves no such respect. Wealth fools us into believing that with the right amount, it might just pay off. In the end, it only keeps increasing the bill, moving the goalposts farther and farther away. On the other hand, if this life is if this life in this world is ultimately pointless, it might help you to forget that grim reality for a time. Let me pray for us. Lord, these are hard words. Uh, these are um, not very encouraging, not very uplifting. Um, in fact, in many ways, they uh, are the opposite of that. But they are meant to be sobering for us. They're meant to be like that wrecked car uh, in the front of my high school. That we would see the devastation, we would see the, um, the, the results of a life spent in pursuit of these things, and we would choose not to go down that path. We'd choose not to get in that car. We'd choose to try to find meaning beyond what's under the sun. Lord, help us. If, we, if we've been uh, fooled by what people tell us about meaning and significance, people have told us, advertisements tell us, friends, television shows, they tell us that you can find meaning, you can find purpose, you can find significance in this world. Lord, help us be disabused of that, I, that notion, that we would strip that motivation out of our life and that we would pursue things beyond that. Pray this all in your name.